The Cold War has given us more than our fair share of characters. Many of them murderous, some clownish, a few, fewer than I might wish, sincere. We live even today with the legacy of the Cold War decades, among other things, in the form of some of these eccentric characters. Vladimir Putin springs to mind. A judo master who has, from time to time, been seen rediscovering ancient Greek relics in the Black Sea, saving a news crew from a wild tiger attack, masterfully scoring goals in ice hockey, driving a Formula One car, riding with a Russian motorcycle gang, and guiding cranes on their migration east. This character was, of course, a lieutenant colonel in the KGB before quickly rising to his present heights. Xi Jinping is another current political character that gave me the idea for this show. He isn't just the new emperor of China. He's the first general secretary born after the communist takeover, and so his entire life exists in the bubble of the ever-simmering Cold War mentality. He was a worker-peasant-soldier-student, meaning that he was admitted to higher education because of the class background of his parents, not his abilities. And he worked his way up through the party his entire life. Not only this, but he's also particularly wise. His political thoughts have been enshrined in the country's constitution, such as it is, and have even been given the typically creative name, Xi Jinping Thought. There is a game show that celebrates his wisdom called Studying Xi in the New Era. It's a hoot. I'll put a link to the video in the show notes. There are books and songs written in his honor, and what he has to say is so important that any Chinese-based news aggregator app is required to show stories about Xi at the top of the list. Perhaps most impressive, Xi, the X-Man, has officially superseded the J-Man in importance in China, the J-Man being Jesus himself. In rural Chinese villages, the party has declared that Christian religious objects be removed because only the Chinese Communist Party will cure illness and eliminate poverty, and any pictures of Jesus himself in the home should be replaced by portraits of Xi Jinping. A government official working on the project told reporters, Many rural people are ignorant. They think God is their savior. After our cadre's work, they'll realize their mistakes and think, we should no longer rely on Jesus, but on the party for help. That was in the Washington Post, November 14th, 2017, if you doubt the greatness of Xi. There are others, of course. Many others. We live in an era with no shortage of eccentric and dangerous dictators. And, of course, there are many categories. Some world leaders are narcissistic to extreme degrees. Some are truly dangerous. Some are contained disasters, and others threaten the stability of the world's delicate balance of power. 
but very few rise to the heights I want to explore here in a couple of sketches of leadership. They transcend authoritarian norms and become something truly unhinged. In doing research for a few new shows these last weeks, during what was meant to be some time off, I came across some fascinating stories that didn't quite fit into the larger shows. So I want to bring them to you here. Personality Cults Gone Awry This time on the Cold War Vault. Not every Cold War story from the Caribbean is about Fidel Castro, and not every shady alliance in those latitudes comes back to the Contras. In the service of its Cold War ends, the United States has maintained some fairly thorny relationships with dictators in its hemisphere. During the Cold War, the U.S. intervened in the political affairs of at least Costa Rica, Cuba, Guatemala, Brazil, the Dominican Republic, Chile, Bolivia, El Salvador, Nicaragua, the very tiny island of Grenada, and even more under Operation Condor, which will be the subject of a future episode. I'll direct you to a famous quote. It was given by the T-shirt formerly known as Che Guevara from his mountain stronghold to the Argentinian reporter Jorge Ricardo Massetti. He said, Fidel isn't a communist. Politically, you can define him and his movement as revolutionary nationalist. Of course, he is anti-American in the sense that the Americans are anti-revolutionaries. Che's analysis is useful for making some sense out of why the U.S. allied itself with someone who might otherwise have just been a local strongman but became a Cold War story of a cult of personality and despotic insanity. One dictator of a particularly objectionable character rarely gets included in such lists because the CIA didn't pay for his election, didn't overthrow his predecessor, and didn't need to provide support to keep him in power. He was a useful but problematic ally against communism in the Americas, who primarily stood ideologically for his own cult of personality. The place is Haiti, and the man is Francois Papadoc Duvalier. The U.S. government never really liked him. The Haitian politician came to power in 1957 on a black nationalist platform, fueled by decades of class resentment. He was a U.S.-educated physician by training, which is where he got the name Papa Doc Duvalier. But his election had one additional very special ingredient that makes him stand apart from some of the more colorful dictators in the hemisphere. He courted the Ungan of Haiti, the priests of the religion of voodoo. 
Haiti is ostensibly a Catholic country, but Duvalier was fully aware that outside of the cities, among the villages where he had worked as a doctor, the voodoo priests, not the Catholic priests, were afforded the real fear and respect. Across the country, voodoo temples served as branch offices for Duvalier's campaign. When it was over and he had secured the presidency, he celebrated the victory by meeting the Ungans in the National Palace, all the while fluidly crossing the line between carefully calculated strategy and probably believing his own mythology. But as I like to do, let me just elaborate on this story for a moment. It might be that celebration isn't entirely the right word for what unfolded after the election. Historian Elizabeth Abbott recounts the details. First, Papa Doc summoned the most powerful spirits to his aid to gain complete mastery over the hearts and minds of the people. He made a trip to a mountain cave called Trufoban, which has been the home of evil spirits from the pre-revolutionary days of slavery in Haiti. With a voodoo priest in tow and surrounded by assistants, an elaborate ceremony was performed to dislocate the spirits from the cave and induce them to follow Papa Doc back to the National Palace. Which they did because Papa Doc Duvalier was a very serious voodoo priest himself. So the story goes. When his power had been consolidated and the legend of his nearly impenetrable cloak of evil spirits had been promulgated throughout the countryside, Duvalier felt that it was time to make a very clear point to all of the priests and priestesses, the Ungan and Mambos respectively, who had helped him win over the rural people and seize the presidency in 1957. In 1959, Duvalier deployed soldiers to the heartland of Haitian voodoo. At gunpoint, the soldiers rounded up all of the Ungan and Mambos and forced them into truck convoys that took them back to the National Palace in Port-au-Prince. They were brought into a central hall where Papa Doc confronted them, wearing a red robe that was at least intended to indicate that he was a member of the Sect Rouge, a notoriously bloody, possibly cannibalistic subcult of Haitian voodooism. He said, Never forget that I am the supreme authority of the state. Henceforth I, I alone, I am your only master. After which he sent them home. Papa Doc himself had a Catholic upbringing, but showed no love for it when he came to power. His relationship to the Catholic Church, the local religion, and his own identification as a deity was complicated. In the early days of his presidency, some of the propaganda produced combined all of these. It said that Papa Doc was one with the Loas, which are the spirits of voodoo, Jesus Christ and God himself. He proceeded to expel all of Haiti's foreign-born priests and bishops and replace them with Voodoo Ungan, a move that got him excommunicated from the Catholic Church. His powers of persuasion were evidently phenomenal, however, as he eventually convinced the Pope himself to readmit him to the Church and 
give him permission to nominate his own domestic priests and bishops. His efforts at indoctrinating the young were also creative, and definitely add something to the broader understanding of Papadoc's particularly strained relationship with the Catholic Church. His own version of the Lord's Prayer taught in schools went this way. Our Doc, who art in the National Palace for Life, hallowed be thy name by present and future generations. Thy will be done at Port-au-Prince and in the provinces. Give us this day our new Haiti, and never forgive the trespasses of the anti-patriots who spit every day on our country. Let them succumb to temptation, and under the weight of their venom, deliver them not from any evil. Papadoc Duvalier was, as with all absolute dictators, not without his serious detractors. After his election and the recruitment of the evil protector spirits, but before his consolidation of power among the voodoo priesthood, in 1958, three Haitian army officers who had supported his presidential opponent and therefore been exiled to Florida, joined with five mercenaries from the U.S. and came back to Haiti to overthrow Papadoc. They expected more support, I think. They got exactly... None. Stories about Papadoc were already swirling, and for Haitians, at least the ones in the army under his command, it wasn't worth the risk to go against the big man. The eight rebels were picked off, one by one, until there were none. It was a small and absurdly unsuccessful attempt at a coup, but it left Papadoc profoundly paranoid and distrustful of the army. He couldn't risk relying on them, and particularly the officers. In 1959, he created a rural militia, officially called the Volunteers of the National Security. But everyone just called it the Tantan Makut. This is the name of a kind of spirit in Haitian voodoo who would come in the night and kidnap children put them in a sack and take them away to be eaten. One former military captain that particularly distressed Papa Doc met an untimely end on his orders. The officer was beheaded with a machete and the head packed into ice for transport back to the National Palace. With the help of a Hungan named Dodo Nassar, Duvalier interrogated the spirit of the officer by talking at length with the severed head. It should come as no surprise that this isn't the only story of that kind. When his former rival for the presidency died while hiding out in the Cuban embassy, Papa Doc ordered his Tantan Makut to steal the body. On its way to the cathedral, the funeral procession was set upon by the militia and the casket was stolen spirited away back to the National Palace. Papa Doc Duvalier mounted the body, already in the early stages of decomposition, and demanded that his enemy's spirit come out to be captured. Alas, reported the Makut in attendance, it had already departed. In one of the more eccentric incidents, though no less murderous, Papa Doc had a heart attack and left power in the hands of the head of the Tantan Makut, 
Clement Babo. Well, it was a bad idea to take the job because on his return from the hospital, Papa Doc had Barbeau sent to prison for trying to take power, which he may or may not have done. Though certainly, by the time he was released from prison in April 1963, Barbeau had decided that getting rid of Papa Doc Duvalier was a pretty good idea. He hatched a plot to kidnap Papa Doc's children. The attempted coup didn't work, and Barbeau transformed himself into a black dog and disappeared. At least, that's what Papa Doc Duvalier was told, which he fully believed, and ordered the Makut to round up every black dog and put it to death for the attempted coup, which they did. Three months later, they did find Barbeau, in human form, hiding out in the countryside. He was executed. I might have mentioned that the U.S. had an icy relationship with Francois Duvalier, mostly due to a range of human rights abuses, both published and known only to intelligence circles, and not totally unrelated to performing voodoo rituals with bodies in the National Palace. Eisenhower had offered some support with a large package of financial aid, and that had continued with the U.S. Marine Corps missions to train the Tantan Makut, a common move during the Cold War in Latin America and the Caribbean. None of this sat well with U.S. President John Kennedy. In 1962, the U.S. stopped paying out aid, to which Papa Doc rejected all U.S. aid and apparently, by his own assertion, placed a curse on Kennedy, which manifested itself in Dallas. In 1963. Now, we have a dictator in Haiti, with a private militia named after a nocturnal child-devouring spirit, casting spells in the presidential residence, who has publicly taken credit for the assassination of the U.S. president by way of spiritual curse. This surely makes the strategic support of Saddam Hussein in the 1980s look positively benign in comparison. A March 1963 Life magazine article said of Papa Doc, quote, Soon Port-au-Prince was filled with rumors of strange doings up in Duvalier's private quarters in the palace. The stories have come along steadily ever since that he seeks guidance by studying goats' entrails. It had also been noticed and reported from the beginning of his successful run for the presidency that he resembled the voodoo loa Berencendi, the spirit of the dead. You might recognize him as the black-clad and well-dressed character all prepared for burial in the traditional Haitian way. The life report went on. Whenever he appears in public, the look of him makes every tale seem possible, including hopeful talk that he really is one of the walking dead. His eyes are icy and hooded, his walk is measured by a robot rhythm, his voice a roomy whisper. He keeps his hands hidden, he dresses in zombie black, his features are chilled into a graveyard mask that makes him seem the very spirit of evil. 
As any time the US dealt with the threat of encroaching communism in the Cold War, it had to weigh the evils, greater and lesser. In this case, a reanimated zombie possessed by the very living spirit of evil and death who openly claimed to have killed the president through a curse. Final verdict? Khrushchev would have to go. In a typically measured response, the new administration of Lyndon Johnson restarted aid and eased political pressure. The recent close call with Cuba and the missile crisis had the U.S. looking for any friends in the region it could find, install, or prop up. And despite his failings, Papa Doc Duvalier, god of death, came out as an ardent anti-communist, strategically located to hold the communist incursion into the Caribbean at bay. So, what came of him? Papa Doc died on April 21st, 1971. He was given last voodoo rites, and his son, Jean-Claude Baby Doc Duvalier, was sworn into the office of the presidency on April 22nd, at the age of 19. But it couldn't end so easily as that, could it? Not for a character like Papa Doc. As his funeral procession was making its way to the cemetery, a sudden eruption of panic tore through the crowd. People ran around, looking for ways to escape. The crowd was slammed against metal shutters of closed stores, and, so the New York Times reported, two men fell or jumped into a manhole. Marching bands dropped their instruments and ran. The Tantan Makut shouted orders to try and calm the crowd. Thirty minutes later, the whole scene unfolded again. Though the New York Times doesn't mention it, some recollections of the procession say that it was caused by a sudden whirlwind blocking out the sun. With mourners crying, Duvalier has burst the grave and is loosed upon the earth. There is no hiding place. But then, as with so many tales of the 14 years of Papa Doc's rule, maybe that's just another story. It's not clear, from Saparmurat Niazov's simple background, that he would become a god-king, and not a vodka-swilling Soviet functionary. Until the very end of the Soviet Union, the latter seemed far more likely. He was born in 1940, near Ashgabat, the capital of the Soviet Socialist Republic of Turkmen, known today as Turkmenistan. His father died in, or around, the Second World War. Officially, he died fighting. But some, possibly propagandistic attempts to discredit Nyasov, claim his father was a deserter. His mother was killed in a 1948 earthquake that may have killed up to 10% of the population of the country. Though, because of censorship, we will never really know. He studied at the Leningrad Polytechnic Institute, became a member of the Communist Party, and did his time in various party positions in Turkmenistan. He had his big break in 1985, when the first secretary of the Communist Party of the Turkmen SSR, 
got himself wrapped up in Mikhail Gorbachev's efforts to be seen to root out corruption. The old first secretary was out, and Nyasov was in. This led directly to his election to the top job in the country in 1990, the chairman of the Supreme Soviet of the Turkmen SSR. And this is how things might have stayed until retirement, serving Moscow, skimming a little off the top, if history hadn't completely changed his fate. The party in Turkmenistan was known as one of the most hardline parties in the Union. It was no surprise that when the hardliners attempted a coup to oust Gorbachev in 1991, Nyasov supported it. When it failed, though, it was clear that he needed to make other plans. And so, like many of the other former republics, he led the way toward independence from the dying Union. He was declared the first president of the independent Turkmenistan on October 27, 1991, which was essentially the position he already held. And then on June 21st of 1992, he was popularly elected president. I should clarify what I mean by popularly. He was the only candidate, with 99.5% of the votes. And then, in 1993, something strange happened. Saparmurat Nyasov declared himself Turkmenbashi, the leader of all Turkmen. The next time he was out of power would be in 2006, when he died. So how exactly did Nyasov go off the rails? It isn't really clear how the idea was first planted in his head, or if it was a long-simmering ambition. Whatever the case, Saparmurat Nyasov became untethered from the constraints of humility and reality. In a typically creative description of Turkmenistan's capital, Ashgabat, in the last years of the supreme leader's life, the writer Paul Thoreau said, The city was an example of what happens when absolute political power, money, and mental illness are combined. And perhaps that's the best explanation for the whole affair. During the years that Turkmenbashi ruled, he declared himself a national prophet, wrote an alternative spiritual text for the Muslim nation, and built statues of himself around the capital, clad in gold. One of them, a 50-foot-high godlike depiction on a 250-foot granite pedestal, rotated on a massive clockwork platform, so that it was as if Turkmenbashi himself was ushering the sun across the sky. Among the vast statues in his honor, this one also mechanical, his alternative spiritual text, the Runama, is depicted in gargantuan form and, at least in the beginning, opened every night at 8 p.m. to play readings from the Runama and video clips of Turkmenbashi. Some say now it rarely opens due to persistently burned out motors. So what exactly is the Runama? 
Well, I suppose a roundabout way to explain its importance, other than the fact that it became the primary literary text taught in all levels of school, can be found in the entrance to a mosque Turkmenbashi had built in his hometown. Allegedly the largest mosque in Central Asia. In one pillar of the entrance is carved, The Quran is Allah's book. And in the other is carved, The Runama is a holy book. That's quite some extraordinary company to keep. The Runama is just one piece of evidence, which can be found everywhere, that Turkmenbashi, like other such characters at the center of cults of personality, don't just take an interest in all aspects of national life. They consider themselves to be experts in it. With this in mind, it's fair to say that Turkmenbashi's expertise was truly galactic in scope. For instance, health and welfare. Gold teeth were out. Nyasov, I mean Turkmenbashi, banned them, owing to his knowledge of dental health. He recalled in his public decree that he had watched dogs chew on bones when he was young, and so he said, those of you whose teeth have fallen out did not chew on enough bones. So chew on bones. He banned smoking in 1997, which isn't that unusual, except that the decree came about because after surgery for heart disease, he wasn't allowed to smoke. And if he couldn't smoke, no one could. Without any reason given, he banned beards and long hair, and charged the Ministry of Education with checking hair length. He banned dogs, at least from the capital, because of their unappealing odor. Turkmenbashi was also a master of media and culture. He decreed that anyone who appeared on television was banned from wearing makeup. Female presenters wore too much whitening powder, and male presenters sometimes did the same. This was offensive to him. The ideal skin tone would be the unmodified color of wheat, and that was that. In 2001, he banned opera, ballet, and circuses, having determined that they weren't necessary and that those activities were un-Turkmen-like. And then he started to enact an entire intertangled agenda that banned recorded music. This forced the replacement of recorded music at events from television programming to wedding parties. The practical effect was ultimately no more listening to music in cars and no more lip-syncing. On the welfare of the people, he was just as eager to micromanage and declare grandiose projects in equal measure. He broke up the human lifespan into segments, legally defining childhood as lasting until 13, adolescence until 25, youth until 37, and adulthood until the official beginning of old age at 85. After a sudden interest in winter sports, he ordered the construction of an ice palace suitable for 1,000 people who would learn to ice skate and ski in a mountain resort full of cafes and restaurants, and presumably snow and ice. And despite the fact that summers around the capital city are long and hot, this was hardly the craziest idea he ever had. Depending on your point of view, 
That might go to any of the decrees I've mentioned, though likely the most egomaniacal, and what remains the most internationally well-known, was Turkmenbashi's move in 2002 to rename the months of the year and the days of the week to suit his national vision, and himself. Though I'm not sure those can be separated from one another in a cult of personality like this. January was named Turkmenbashi, after himself, while April was named for his mother, Gurban Sultan, and September became Runama, the name of his Book of Spirituality. Other months had names of historical figures. That all makes sense in the context. If your mission is to exhibit so much transformative godlike power that you can change the ancient names of the months. And the days, which all took on new names under the system as well. The BBC reported at the time, in 2002, that the change was generally taken by the people as most of Turkmenbashi's decrees were taken. Arbitrary annoyances that were ultimately unchallengeable though the reporter did find at least one person willing to offer an assessment. He said, This is a joke. The entire civilized world lives by the same calendar, but Nyasov decides to set us apart once again. It seems like he lives on another planet. Another planet, you say? Well, in 2005, the year before he died, Turkmenbashi felt compelled to take his genius to new heights. A Russian rocket launched from Kazakhstan. Aboard were two Japanese satellites and a very special hitchhiker, a copy of Turkmenbashi's Runama. Turkmenistan's official state news agency declared, the book that conquered the hearts of millions on Earth is now conquering space. It went on to say that the book would orbit Earth for the next 150 years. Here's a pop quiz. Who invented the hamburger? Time's up. If you said Kim Jong-il, you won't be sent to a work camp. Congratulations. Oh, how could we not make mention of the grandest, lingering Cold War cult of them all, North Korea's Kims. The eccentricities and creative repressions of the regime are reported frequently enough that we don't need to rehash them here, particularly as the majority are so recent as to distance themselves from the old historical Cold War struggle, like the invention of the hamburger, but the similarities with other cults of leadership that I've mentioned are remarkable. If you pay attention to stories from and about North Korea, you'll know many, or most of these, and they are spread over three generations of Kims. As I mentioned at the start, there are categories, and the claims made by the family range from the patently untrue flight of arrogant fancy to the potentially profoundly dangerous. Some claims are designed to bolster the family's claim to legitimacy, and some seem to have been spun out of an all-night brainstorming session of North Korean propagandists with guns to their heads. I'll run through the story more quickly than the others, because in this case, the purpose that each kind of tall tale serves is instructive. 
Perhaps less striking versions of such tales come from the mouthpieces of other governments less prone to such exaggeration. And another instructive point is just what happens when such claims strain the limits of credulity to the point of breaking. Of the three Kims, the father of the cult was Kim Il-sung, who came to power in the north of a Korea already divided by the events of the Second World War. With the guidance of the Red Army, support from Mao Zedong, and permission from Stalin himself, Kim began the campaign to unite the Koreas. He's not particularly amusing in the context of these crazy stories. He lied for self-aggrandizement, but never rose to the level of superhuman. He exaggerated his service in the Second World War the way that many people who served in the Second World War have. He would have had you believe that he was solely responsible for the defeat of the Japanese in Korea, which is a serious exaggeration of his relatively minor role, but in that context he does hold a place of genuine affection among the people of the North. And it is true that he led a guerrilla army against the Japanese. While Kim Il-sung had a minor cult of personality in his political battles leading up to the Korean War, it faded as the realities of that war took hold. This would change as the communist North succeeded in holding back the imperialist forces, and by the end of the war, it was significant, rivaling and even surpassing Stalin's own cult. But North Korea in those early days was absolutely a puppet of the Soviet Union. And so after Stalin's death in 1953, a period of slow movement away from personality cults occurred. In 1956, Khrushchev made his famous secret speech, denouncing the cult of Stalin and dismantling its various forms in a process of de-Stalinization. It's called the secret speech because it was read in a closed session of the Politburo. But it was also read down the line to local party officials, party activists, and closed local party meetings. Hwang Jang Yap, the second highest level North Korean defector, has written that criticism of Kim Il-sung's cult of personality came from students who were studying in the Soviet Union during the period of thaw and de-Stalinization. They came back to North Korea and were interrogated, tortured, and if they were deemed to be a threat, killed. This assessment stands somewhat at odds with other evidence. In fact, in 1957, the North Korean Political Dictionary said, quote, the concept of personality cult has nothing to do with Marxism-Leninism and causes great harm to the strengthening of the party ranks and the deed of the revolution, end quote meaning that the concept of de-Stalinization had made it into official spheres, as well as just into the minds of students. But the elder Kim pushed ahead. When lesser political pawns like Kim Il-sung rub elbows with deified dictators like Joseph Stalin, their hubris knows no rest. By 1959, Kim was inching toward his own Stalinist cult, with little things like the assurance of the party newspaper that his name would be spelled in bold, 
and manipulating the grade school curricula to boost his own standing among the great world communist leaders, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, and almost humorously, Kim. And then in 1967, Kim Il-sung gave a speech called On the Immediate Tasks in the Direction of the Party's Propaganda Work. An underwhelming title for the most important speech he ever gave. It was a call to arms to create a monolithic state. It was the birth of the North Korea and the cult of Kim that we see today. So began the unchecked claims of divinity and grandeur that would define the Kim dynasty to the present day. And I underpin what is arguably the most repressive government in the world. Arguably, but not certainly. The only thing particularly supernatural about Kim Il-sung was his wisdom. World leaders allegedly praised him. All North Korean publications, from newspapers to textbooks, had to include snippets of his wisdom, and children began to learn at the earliest age that they were fed and clothed only by the grace of the chairman. Kim Il-sung died in 1994, but his son, Kim Jong-il, had been contemplating his own succession for 20 years. It was in 1974 that Kim Jong-il decided to reinvent himself. Because it was in that year that new resistance to the Kims seemed to be growing, particularly toward Kim Jong-il, who had taken over new powers from his father. A riot and breakout in the expansive Yodong concentration camp complex convinced the younger Kim he needed to take his own cult of personality seriously and elevate it from the wise war hero image of his father. Kim Jong-il would be a kind of shaman predestined by spirits to rule. When he was born in his father's guerrilla camp in 1942, he was actually born somewhere in the Soviet Union in 1941, a double rainbow appeared and a comet shot across the sky. There were flashes of lightning and thunder and an iceberg on the lake at the top of the mountain shattered. Within five years, stories of trees bearing divine messages about his birth were found in state media, and he had acquired titles like the God of the Contemporary World and the Saint of All Saints. This seems like a good start to a cult of personality. But it was just a start. During his life in power, Kim Jong-il acquired more than 50 titles and was credited with countless supernatural and near-supernatural deeds. The official state news agency at various times declared the following. As an infant, he learned to walk at just three weeks and was talking at eight weeks. As a student, he corrected and chastised his teachers for their incorrect interpretations of history. In college, he wrote six full operas in two years, and they have been determined to be better than any in the history of music. This was presumably between writing 1,500 books as an undergraduate, the most of anyone ever. In 1994, after the completion of North Korea's only golf course, 
Kim Jong-il shot 38 under par, including 11 holes in one. It was his first and last round of golf. He had the ability to alter the weather simply through the power of thought. He, like his son, Kim Jong-un, neither urinated nor defecated, their bodies being so finely honed. And of course, he invented the cheeseburger. The claims by his son, Kim Jong-un, aren't particularly different and at this point not particularly amusing, except possibly for the fact that the official North Korean state line on Kim Jong-un's digestive tract has changed. It is no longer officially claimed that he doesn't defecate. But in that is something very interesting. It is an acknowledgement of a generational change, something that could change everything. Sonia Ryang, an expert in Korean matters, suggests that the superhuman antics of the Kims are designed to make them the highest form of existence, for every North Korean to try to emulate while simultaneously knowing it's impossible, putting the population into a permanent position of insufficient striving. But what happens when a sufficient segment of that population stops believing the myth? In 2013, a new biography of Kim Jong-un about his childhood was sent out and then quickly retracted. The only reason being that it had distorted propaganda. It had exaggerated his early years in ways that the regime felt were too outlandish for people to accept. We don't know what ways, but it could be his claims of driving a car at the age of three. It doesn't really matter. It was a major shift because the leakages of media into North Korea, enabled by new technology, have allowed the new generation to be, as author Christopher Richardson writes, more than ever equipped to see through the holograms of power projected from Pyongyang. This is a dangerous change, a dangerous time when the entire purpose of the mythologizing, the deifying of leaders and politicians has to be reassessed because there is danger inherent in creating myths surrounding leadership that are far beyond the reasonable. I guess another way of putting it might be writing checks that they can't cash. The propagandists and the objects of their fantasies, the leaders, have to ask what the ultimate purpose of the claims really is, not just in Korea, but in every country all around the world. Because all politicians, while maybe not poets or shaman, bathe themselves in stories designed to stroke their egos or instill terror, and everything in between. These stories are all fascinating to me. But make no mistake about the fact that all of this happy nonsense serves a very sinister purpose. I've made almost no mention of the murders, certainly not the mass murders, the kidnappings, the tortures, the work camps, the death camps. That's not the story I wanted to tell. Not today, anyway. But the stories that these characters tell sometimes justify and sometimes mask the frequently, usually stunningly terrible aspects of their regimes. The stories people tell about themselves are fictions. 
just like the stories other people tell about them. A quote that sticks with me constantly is from the 2002 film Storytelling. The context isn't important. The quote is, I don't know about what happened, Vi, because once you start writing, it all becomes fiction. Philosophically, this is true, but it undoubtedly matters what the intent of the fictionalization is. Does the fiction come from the natural progress of interpretation, the time between history and the telling, or is there a lie with intent? That's propaganda. At what point does the lie transcend propaganda and become something more, something sinister? An attempt not to influence, but to control. That is a fluid boundary that we often talk about in matters of Cold War ideology and its history. And so what is it called when the personal lies create a cult designed to inspire awe and terror in equal measure to control a population? Did Papadoc Duvalier believe that he was a voodoo priest? Or a Lawa? In fact, was he? Did the mighty Turkmenbashi think that he was a great philosopher-poet, leading his people the best he knew how? Did Kim Jong-il, in some corner of his mind, believe that he invented the hamburger? I don't know. I can't answer any of those things. Just like everyone else, I can tell stories. And just like any good student of history, I do my best not to interject any propaganda or any more fiction than is absolutely necessary. Thanks for listening to The Vault. This episode was researched, written, produced, deleted, and rewritten by DJ Kinney. Support The Vault and get your show ideas directly to me as a Patreon supporter. Bonus content for every show is there as well. Join the Facebook page where I regularly manipulate high school elections to favor Vladimir Putin and Tracy Flick. Until next time.